0: There is no one-size-fits-all solution for optimizing your sales and marketing organizations, yet how you sell and market is a tremendous differentiator. Value Prime Solutions uses proven formulas and frameworks with a customized approach to increase your sales and marketing ROI. To learn more about how we can help you, visit valueprimesolutions.com. Welcome, everyone, to the B2B Revenue Executive Experience. I'm your host, Chad Sanderson. Today, we're going to be talking about why organizations struggle to understand customer perceptions of value, and why this failure creates challenges for growing businesses, uh, especially those focused on becoming truly customer-centric uh, and understanding what it means to do that and to deliver that. To help us tackle the topic, we have with, with us Eric Bregrand a professor of marketing from Kellogg School of Management at Northwestern and managing director of Axios Partners, management consulting firm focused on driving customer value and in innovation and management. So Eric, I want to thank you for taking time to be on the show today.
1: Hey, it's my pleasure. I'm looking forward to our conversation.
0: Excellent. So uh, as we said, kind of before we start recording, we we'll keep this as conversational as possible, but we always like to start uh, when we talk to our guests about, you know, if you look back over your career, was there a defining moment or an event that happened that taught you something that lessons that you keep going back to just kind of help us understand what that event or where that thing was and what kind of lessons you took away from it and why?
1: Sure. Uh, I started at one of the big, prestigious strategy consulting firms. And one of my assignments there was to lead a strategy project for a natural gas supplier. Uh, the industry conventional wisdom was that the business sold a commodity. A molecule of methane is a molecule of methane. <laughs> uh, and in fact, I can buy natural gas here in Chicago from you, you put it in a pipeline in Oklahoma and I take out somebody else's molecule of methane here in Chicago and we all call it even. Um, So if that's not a commodity, I'm not quite sure what is. It seems like the definition of a commodity, which meant I thought this strategy project was gonna be about the fastest strategy project ever (laughs) conducted. (laughs) Because if you're the low cost, you really need to be, if it's truly a commodity business, You've got to be the low-cost supplier, and you should focus everything around cutting costs. But we, we challenged that assumption. Uh, we figured out what was really valuable to their customers and found several ways to differentiate uh, the offering with value-added services, systems, and programs wrapped around the molecule of methane. And as a result, our client was able to increase their price uh their profit margins improved by 40% wow and their customer satisfaction went from the bottom quartile to number 2 out of 198 uh all within 18 months excellent so i so i, I was thinking about that and i'm thinking man they raised price in a commodity market and their customers liked it liked them even more for it <laughs> <laughs> So at that point, I was I was pretty much hooked. I learned that you know really understanding customer value is critical, and that there's money to be made in challenging the industry conventional wisdom.
0: Excellent, excellent. Is that what led you to you know go more down an academia path? I mean, the, it's a pretty prestigious university and, and professorship there. So I'm kind of curious, kind of was that what pushed you in that direction, or what was it that led you there?
1: I think. Led is probably the rather than me leading myself <laughs> it, it happened naturally, is, is more what happened. You know As a strategy consultant, you know, the, the fundamental questions were, what markets and customers should we serve, and how are we going to profitably win their business? And to me, that all came down to customer value. And the thought leaders in customer value were in marketing. So it wasn't necessarily a drive to get into marketing. It just happened that way. So following the action. Exactly. Exactly. And then in my consulting, I've always focused on building the capability within the client uh, to become self-sufficient. So in effect, I was more of a coach or, or teacher and in an impl- in more of an applied learning environment. So I've kind of had that bent toward teaching to begin with. Uh, so as all this kind of came together, uh, I was really absolutely quite flattered uh, when the chair of the marketing department at Kellogg invited me to join the faculty. It's such a smart and talented group. Uh, that I constantly learn and enhance my knowledge just from from working with them.
0: Excellent. Excellent. So when we were prepping for the show, we settled on the topic of customer value and and why organizations struggle to understand it. Uh, It's a topic obviously near and dear to my heart. And it's one that's actually getting a lot of play uh, kind of in the social sphere right now. A lot of people talking about, well, everybody says, you know, value, but nobody really tells you how to do it. And so I'm kind of curious was it that instance with you know the methane and the commodity market realization? What was it about that customer value that made you really want to dig into it, to understand it and to help others understand it more effectively?
1: Yeah, I, I think it was that, that example because every successful business needs to sell something to a customer at a price where they can make enough money. If they can't, they're going to go out of business. And if that's the fundamental challenge that we have, We got to understand how customers decide to buy. And I think customers decide to buy based on the value they get from one product versus the value they get from another product. And they compare that to the price differential of those two products and whatever nets out to to be the best value and use for them. That's that's where they're going to go.
0: So, I mean, return that they see from when you say value. So let's let's dive into that just a little bit. It sounds like you're talking about business, the business return and the business value. Wouldn't the value that somebody sees vary on
1: their on their role inside of an organization? And exactly, and that's what makes B two B marketing so interesting. <laughs> um, that there are there is value that accrues to the organization, and then there are people within that organization who may see only part of that value, or it may even be that they're pretty. They're more of an influencer in the purchase, and they won't personally see any of the value. They're, they're performing kind of their corporate duty to point the, the company in, in the best direction. Excellent. So trying to understand value, um, we're going to talk – I think we'll talk some a lot today about understanding value, but it really does have to apply at both the individual and the, the company level.
0: Excellent. And so, all right, so let's start with kind of a contextual uh, example for our listeners so they understand what we're talking about here. So if you can kind of give us an example of how an ideal company would approach this, uh, and then we can dive into some details.
1: Okay. So the customer value leaders do four things really well. They The first one is they choose value. And what I mean by that is they make it a conscious choice. So much of the value that we deliver to customers today is a series of incremental decisions that may have made sense at at one point in time, but we just kind of muddle through. And it's not really taking that step back and thinking holistically, frequently enough that we are making what I would consider a conscious choice in commitment to a winning value proposition. Okay. The second thing they do is they're very good at creating value. And by that, I mean, they think of both their organization and all the partner organizations in their supply chain or in their in their delivery value delivery network as kind of one entity. And they figure out if we were all one big organization, what would be the best way to deliver on this promise of value? And now how do I create not only the incentives for the customer to buy, but how do I create the incentives for all of these moving parts, some of which I don't have any direct authority over, <laughs> to, to behave the way I need them to behave in order to fulfill that promise to that end customer? So then the third thing that they're really good at is communicating value. So they, if you ask them what's the value proposition for a product, they don't give you a list of seven benefits they give you they state clearly two three maybe at most three things uh, that are in fact the highest impact sources of value for that for that target customer and they're good at also offering a reason to believe for that customer that they're going to get that value uh, from your offering and the last thing they're really good at is converting value and I use the term convert instead of capture. Uh, A lot of people like to talk about capturing value, but that has kind of a a zero-sum game feel to me about it, (laughs) that there's only a certain amount of value there, and and it's an adversarial relationship with the customer to figure out who's going to capture it. And I like convert because the term convert, because it's not so much a zero-sum game. There may be pricing mechanisms that we can do that costs us almost nothing and deliver still more value to the customer. So we're actually pricing in a way that that um, we are converting value for getting our fair share of that value. But we're actually growing the pie in the process of, of managing our pricing.
0: Excellent. OK, so the, the first one, the conscious, you know, making a conscious choice. Right. We see. Uh, there's a lot of talk about that these days, but but the vast majority of organizations, um, it's probably what keeps us both employed, uh, have a tendency to think of themselves first, right? They focus on the products, feel good statements. It's all very, you know, rah rah kumbaya. Why why do you think, even though the vast majority of I would say you know intelligent informed people that i talk to understand that they need to make a conscious choice to focus on value or make change why do you think organizations have a tendency to keep falling back into that rut of you know products and features
1: it's because we start with the wrong question yeah so if we start by asking how we're better than the competition then features are the natural response we're going to list the things where we actually are better than the competition but the starting question It shouldn't be that. The starting question should be, what is the customer trying to accomplish and what role then could we play in enabling that? So we got to get the starting question about value to be from the customer's perspective uh, right off the bat. Well, that can be
0: challenging, right? That can be challenging, especially when you've got board members and private equity firms that have invested or executives that are all like, you know, they're so focused on the numbers Uh, I think they sometimes do themselves a disservice. They can't pull themselves out to understand that a simple change in the perspective of the question can lead to much uh, more impactful results, not only for your own organization, but for the customers that you engage with.
1: Right. Well, and the other other thing that you mentioned about going to the other extreme, which instead of having a very specific feature that everybody can kind of get their head around, we kind of default to these vague platitudes like quality and relationship and, of course (laughs) – My favorite, my my new favorite is complete end-to-end solutions. (laughs) So these are just empty words. Uh, They've been overused to the point that they really have lost their ability to convey differentiation. But we end up here because it's expedient. So getting to this deeper level of value requires some time and a lot of worthwhile internal debate. But In a short meeting, we can all agree that our product is a high-quality solution and that we are reliable partners uh, with our customer in their quest to succeed. So you can quickly agree on some of these vague platitudes because, you know, who's going to say, oh, well, we want to be a low-quality, unreliable supplier? (laughs) And. And none of your competitors are going to claim that. Um, yeah, we're cheaper, but we're really unreliable and uh, we're very low quality. So, you know, those kind of uh, empty words. Uh, are expedient for us because we can agree to them, but they're not going to move the needle in terms of our sales and marketing.
0: So, so making conscious decisions, being more purposeful and, and slowing down a little bit, it sounds like would, would be advantageous for some of these companies taking the time to really, uh, do the right type of self-analysis as well as, as visionary strategic analysis of where you want to go.
1: Exactly. Exactly.
0: Excellent. So when we were going back and forth, setting this up, um, you mentioned three levels where companies need to understand and articulate customer value, performance, outcomes, and and worth. I was wondering if you could break those down for our listeners. Why those areas?
1: Sure. First, though, we've got to remember that value is a relative term. We can't think about the value of our offering without comparing it to something else, some alternative that the customer has. Preferably, we're comparing ourselves to what the customer would perceive to be their next best alternative to us, because that's really the value we need to beat. If we can beat the next best alternative, we're not going to have any trouble beating everybody else. <laughs> um, so, so first thing is, you can't talk about value on any of the three levels unless you have some alternative in mind that you about what you're measuring that value. So the most basic level of understanding is our performance versus that next best alternative. But we need to do it across the entire customer journey, and we need to do it from the customer's perspective. So most companies are pretty good at understanding the customer journey for the actual product, using the actual product. They've gotten pretty good or better at understanding kind of the buying journey but they still tend to not have as good an understanding about all the other aspects of the total customer journey. And we also still have this bias where we end up not really thinking from the customer's perspective. We still phrase the questions and gather the data in a way that it, it still feels like it's it's more about us. So most companies are at this first level and they're doing Kind of a spotty job. some are doing pretty well in some areas, but it's really hard to be nailing this level on on all dimensions. So then the second one is, okay, so there's some performance difference, so we're better at something. The question is so what? I, you know what does that difference how does that difference affect the customer? So we need to understand what's the outcome for the customer of any of these performance differences. Because that's really what they're focused on. They're trying to accomplish some some task or job or, or achieve some objective. To what degree are we either helping them achieve that objective or hindering them uh, in achieving that objective relative to the other ways that they could be uh, pursuing that objective? And the third level is that not all, not all outcomes are equally important. So we need to assess preferably in monetary terms, you know, what uh, each meaningful outcome is worth to the customer. And while we can't put everything into monetary terms, there's always going to be some intangibles. We want to strive for monetary terms because it, it it basically is the easiest measuring stick that we can use in the selling situation. Uh, so if we can get it there, that's that's ideal. Uh, and what we found is that quantifying value in monetary terms is challenging <laughs> for for everybody. So otherwise, everybody would have already done it. Right. Um, if it were uh, easy. So, <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So um, but what we found is that when you get that right, it really moves the needle. It affects it motivates the customer and it affects your sales win rates. Uh, I can shorten your sales cycle, things like that.
0: Excellent. So going back to that performance, when we talk about traditional market research, and you mentioned personas and journeys and things like that, uh, I'm curious, you know, I've seen a lot of companies uh, spend significant amounts of money uh, on efforts to map customer or buyer journeys, put together, uh, you know, their types of personas or empathy maps, things like that. But it is, as you said, it is very hard for them to not do it from a perspective that doesn't include them. First, so if somebody were approaching that kind of stuff or conducting that, what what would you say uh, would be the best approaches for doing that so that you could get through performance outcome and to worth?
1: Yes, yeah, so we use two different approaches, one for each level. So, in terms of understanding outcomes, we prefer to use a more anthropological or ethnographically inspired approach. Uh, so, you know, if you're trying to understand about the culture of the people on an island in the South Pacific, you don't uh, give them a survey. You go out and you live with them and you become part of the culture. And that's how you become, uh, that's how we would like to try to become our customer. Now, unfortunately, we can't just go live with our customer for a year <laughs> and internalize everything. That's not going to be practical. So we have what we call a, a day in the life of the customer analysis, where we go on-site to the customer, with a cross-functional team from the client, to observe and ask questions of a cross-functional team of the customer, the client's customer, to help us better understand what are the objectives and the priorities uh, that they have, that the customer has. And for the most important objectives, we want them to show us how they're trying to accomplish them now. Uh, and it's not until we understand how they're trying to accomplish it, what works well, what doesn't work well, what, what are the consequences when it doesn't work well, then and only then do we ask, well, how does our offering help or n- might not necessarily help, um, <laughs> achieve those objectives. And so as you can see, this kind of questioning goes back to our original conversation about, well, it, To succeed with customer value, you got to start with the right question, and the right questions all focus on understanding the customer and what they're trying to achieve. uh, The question of how we're performing is the last thing we ask rather than the first thing we ask. Right, right. For understanding the worth, uh, I use my colleague, uh, uh, Professor James Anderson, his customer value modeling approach. Uh, He describes it in his book, uh, Value Merchants, Um, And he's also added in a couple of HBR articles uh, that you can uh, read about as well. But here we build a model to estimate the bottom line impact of those performance differences that our offering creates. Now, this is different from a total cost of ownership study, because in this approach, we only focus on the points of difference. So where our product performs equally to the next best alternative, we put all that data aside. And don't bother gathering any of it because the knock, the knock what we found with total cost of ownership is that you've got to get the data for any impact that your product could have anywhere in the organization. And that list gets really, really long. And it invites the customers to say, you know, I don't have the time. Uh, I'm not going to participate in this. I don't have the time. You're asking for way too much data. Um, So this customer value modeling approach, by just focusing it in on a couple of key points of difference, it allows us to gain the customers, be more likely to gain the customers participation and not waste everyone's time gathering data that we know if the performance is equal, we know the differential value is by definition going to be zero. So it's really both of these approaches are a process of a joint discovery with the customer. So we approach them in a way that we're saying we don't know what the answers are. We've got a way to to understand what you're trying to do and what the economic impact of getting better at doing that might be. And we want to explore, you know, what those possibilities are. They may include things that you never thought we could do for you. Uh, and and that's the, you know, that's our ideal outcome from from these kind of efforts
0: uncover something unexpected. So it sets the stage for innovation based on real data, real data. And I, I mean, I spent the last 10 years of my career trying to, Explain to executives the difference between ethnographic and anthropological research. I hope you've cracked it better than I ever did. But once you get them past that point, once, once they understand that they need to do this research, it really probably should be done by an outside party that is unbiased and doesn't bring you know, those perspectives that can color, create the rose-colored glasses types of stuff. Once you get them through that point and they get that data, then what's the next step? How do you advise them to take it back into the organization and make it actionable
1: well, the the quick hit is to take your most differentiated product. First, just focus on your most differentiated products and get this level of understanding. Because then you could use that information to fine-tune your segmentation and targeting because you now know better what drives value for the different types of customers. You can use that to focus your communication on what will be the most motivating to the customer, and improve your uh, uh, marketing sales effectiveness that way. And lastly, knowing what it's worth, uh, you may be able to raise price or at least stand firmer in reducing some of the unmanaged discounting that's going on. Um, Longer term, you can feed these insights into new product development, customer experience, and customer success efforts uh, to help them uh, prioritize what they're doing.
0: Excellent. When we work with um, customers, we talk a lot about the difference between a customer persona and a buyer persona, right? The person, Because we focus obviously on sales and marketing organizations. But when you're focused on a buyer, marketing has a tendency to provide all these customer personas, right, to the sales organization. Like, hey, this is how you should approach this person. This is what they care about. But in B2B, especially large-scale enterprise, the person who actually signs a check, probably the last person that ever is going to use the product or solution, right? They have to green, right. green light it somewhere. So I'm curious how, you know, you would work with or enable or, or focus on that, that sales conundrum of, okay, you went out, you did the research. We know, you know, how to do the performance outcomes and worth. We know what that is for our organization. How do you then f- funnel that and fuel that into a sales organization so they're better prepared in their own efforts to uncover their customers' perceptions uh, of value?
1: Yeah, so the... So I'd say a couple of things. One is to try to drive that alignment in the organization. These both of these techniques are led jointly by sales and marketing. So the customer value modeling is a joint effort. The dialogues are a joint effort. And by going to those two higher levels of understanding of value, it drives sales and marketing to get on the same page in a much more specific way than they ever have before. So it it forces the organization to agree on what that winning value is for each of those personas instead of settling for some of these vague vague platitudes or or numbing them with features. (laughs) And and, and if you don't, it's got to be led by the leaders of the sales and marketing organization. If they aren't pushing this, and it comes down to how they spend their time i mean if i'm trying to understand what's important to a chief marketing officer or chief revenue officer i don't ask you know what's important to them i ask them how they're spending their time because that's the best clue to me about what they really think is important so if they're not spending their time on making sure that this integration is happening you're destined to have a flavor of the month. You're, you're just not going <laughs> to do it well. You're going to um, not see the results uh, without that. Uh, sales and marketing integration
0: is—is is that a challenge? Like when you go and work with a new organization, or, or, or people come to you and ask for your for your help, is that one of the first places you look, or one of the things that's on your, you know, your checklist to make sure that not only are sales and marketing involved, but that the leadership is completely behind it. And if they're not, do you have ways that you go about perhaps showing them the value of the initiative itself?
1: Yes. So that's the single you've Chad <laughs> you've hit on the single biggest. Uh, reason why these kind of efforts fail. So right. the senior management, if senior management's not on board. And it really, I'm, I singled out sales and marketing, but it it really is a cross-functional requirement for these things to succeed. Because the kind of new sources of value that you're going to come up with, they're not going to be within the control of sales and marketing to make happen. So and that's why we bring a cross-functional team when we do this this kind of analysis because we're trying to create kind of a, a groundswell a bottoms-up approach to generating some enthusiasm. Now, the way that we try to generate the enthusiasm from the leadership team up front is the very same kind of uh, examples that we try to practice what we preach uh, with our clients. So <laughs> so we build a business case. We try to, we describe here's the steps that you need to go through. Here's the resources that are required. Here's what other companies have experienced when they've done the same thing and they've really committed to it, uh, including the leadership. And we can also share examples of, you know, when the leadership's not behind it, you know, we should just walk away because sure, we'd like to to have the fees, but it's just not going to get you the results that you want.
0: Yeah. Which ends up doing nothing but wasting their time, damaging your brand, wasting your time. You know, I mean, it's just it it becomes a bit of a challenge. I, I've seen a lot of transform, and I've kind of been going on a rant on LinkedIn about this lately. Transformation becomes kind of the buzzword, and, and everybody wants it, but nobody, um, I'd say, executives have a tendency to struggle with the fact that that means they have to be on board, and, and they have to ask themselves different questions and take different perspectives. They have to support it, uh, break down those silos that we so often see in those large enterprises, and if they're not behind it, I've just gotten to a point where it's like, I, when you guys are ready, you know know where I'm at, but, but I'm not, I don't want to waste your time. I don't want to impact your business in a negative way, or quite frankly, my own brand. Um, if you guys aren't going to be completely on board with it, it's it's a very challenging and I would say, and maybe I'm wrong, maybe it's a defining moment in the relationship that you have with your customers. Is that making sure that everybody's in alignment? Yeah, you, that's
1: a great, great approach Chad. and, and you're absolutely right.
0: So, all right, let's talk about – uh, we've talked about all of the, the kind of the theory of it. We started with the chemical company. Let's talk about um, – if you can give us another example of a customer that had a problem that, you're, that we're allowed to talk about publicly, but a customer that had a problem, kind of what were those problems? How would you engage and work through this with them? And what were the, were the net results? Kind of walk us through the, that journey of that engagement.
1: Sure, sure. We had a medical uh, device and medical supply company. That was finding that their products were commoditized. Uh, some of them were, in fact, commoditized by themselves. They had li- <laughs> they had licensed out the underlying technology to a competitor, uh, figuring that that would they'd get you know a licensing fee on all of the sales in the market by doing that. But now they had a pretty formidable competitor. So we started one offering at a time and i think that's kind of this is this is more of a bottoms up kind of approach i mean you'll you'll see a lot of approaches where it's analyze everything in the company first and then start carving it up from there we take the opposite approach we want to create a win quickly so we take the most differentiated offerings you know our clients are always tempted to say hey this is a product we haven't been able to sell or <laughs> we you know, we have to discount heavily to sell yeah, can you, can you work your magic on this? And I said, well, we have, we have no magic. So the answer <laughs> of that is no. If it, my hunch is it's not differentiated and going through this process, you know, we may come up with some new ways of differentiating it. And I, I'll give you a quick example of that where we had, um, um, well, they had contact, uh, plates, um, which are, I don't know if you remember from, uh, high school science little petri dishes, but yep. contact. Contact plates are basically the same thing, except they have a, a medium on it already installed on it, so that when you place like a sample of blood onto the plate, it starts to react and it can tell you whether you have a certain virus or you have a certain bacteria. But no matter who's, who offers the contact plate, it um, has to react the same way, otherwise we're going to get all sorts of funky results. <laughs> right. So they had figured it was a commodity business. We're going to cut costs. They created a new way of manufacturing these plates and the lids, but the lids stuck now. So you had to pinch them and turn them a little bit to to open them up. And they thought, well, it's 10% cheaper to manufacture. So we'll share the savings with the customer. We'll cut price by 5%. Um, we went out and to uh, industrial labs and found out that they stack these contact plates 10, 20 high, And they get knocked over all the time, the lids come off, and the experiment's ruined. Uh, So it turned out that the consequences or the outcome of of those falls of the contact plates amounted to 75% of the cost of the plate itself because – Wow. These were like the Eli lilies of the world. They had to file all sorts of reports. They had to redo the test, but then they had to file all sorts of incident reports in the laboratory and have things cleaned and changed and all this stuff. So it was really, really expensive. So instead of lowering price by 5%, we actually raised it by 20%. And they still met all their revenue, all their sales targets. So we took that, and then we went to another instrument that they, uh, instrument that tested blood, and they had, were using the vague, uh, "well we're easier to use" uh, <laughs> argument. And we did this analysis for that, and we found that ease of use in this case meant that a junior technician could run the instrument. So it didn't have to be in the microbiology lab, which is a very specialized lab in the hospital. It could just be put in the general lab, which runs in a lot of hospitals. That runs 24 hours a day, but micro only runs one or two shifts a day. And then you could get the result to the doctor faster, which could get the, the right medicine to the patient faster. And there was just tremendous amount of value for getting that instrument out of the micro lab. And but that's what if you just left it at easy to use, it didn't really mean anything to anybody. <laughs> right. But if you say, well, look, it's easier to use. So now you can move it over there. You have a cheaper person running it and you can run it 24, 24, uh, 7 and lower your length of stay for your patients. You now, all of a sudden, there's just dollar bells, yeah. <laughs> dollar signs everywhere, right? So, we just started picking these off, and we've been through 20 plus of their offerings, uh, and they get dramatic results.
0: That, that's excellent. It's, it's amazing to me, like I said, having spent the last 10 years working with experience, uh, digital experience specifically, but it's always amazing to me how that observational research and, and, and really paying attention from an outside view of what's going on, being you know purposeful and intentful, how that uncovers things that many people just don't seem to understand um, and opportunities that the business can definitely benefit from. So I'm, I'm glad to see that it's producing uh, producing results for your customers as well. So let's change direction a little bit here. I ask all of our guests uh, kind of two standard questions towards the end of each interview in the first one is, you know, you're an executive at, at Axios. You, you obviously you know, have people coming after you that want to get into the university as well. So we like to help our audience understand you know, how, to be, how to effectively capture someone's attention if you were prospecting to them or, or wanted to get in front of them. So from your perspective, what's the most effective way to capture your attention or start to build credibility so that a conversation
1: can ensue? Well, you probably won't be surprised by this answer based on our conversation so far, but you've got to link, you've got to link it to one of my top priority or concerns. There are a lot of things that I could be doing right now more efficiently that would save me time and save me money, but that's not my primary objective right now. There's no way I'm going to save my way to prosperity. I, I, I have to also view the offering therefore as kind of a strategic purchase. If it's, not really very strategic to me. It's really more efficient use of my time to just repurchase what I've already been doing and not have to learn something new. So I'm leaving tons of positive ROI products on the table because I just don't have the time to implement them. And it's just not the, the major focus for me. So if you've linked it to that priority or concern that's really driving my behavior right now and my where my mind is right now, then the main thing is I need some kind of proof that the performance is superior and that I could reliably expect to experience that from you.
0: Excellent. Okay. And so last question, we call it our acceleration insight. So if there was one thing that you could tell sales, marketing, or professional services people, one piece of advice that you think would help them be better, be more effective, beat their targets, what would it be and why?
1: Don't cut, don't cut short the understanding and communicating customer value. Uh, all the forces in business tend to push you the other way, to be quick and to be superficial about it. But you have to resist that temptation because when you understand and demonstrate superior value, you just get dramatic and immediate results from it.
0: Excellent. Excellent. Well, perfect. Eric, if a listener is interested in talking more about uh, the topics we've covered today, what's the best way to get in contact with you?
1: But they could connect with me on LinkedIn or they could go to the Axios Partners uh, website and see what we do there and contact me through there. Uh, that's www.axios, A-X-I-O-S, uh, partners, P-A-R-T-N-E-R-S, inc.com. That's all one word, no punctuation.
0: All right. Excellent. I can't thank you enough for your time today. This has been great having you on the show.
1: Uh, You're welcome. Customer, as you can tell, I I love talking about customer value.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I I have a feeling we probably could go on for hours. No doubt. No doubt. All right, everyone. That does it for this episode. Please check us out at b2brevexec.com and share the episode with friends, family, and coworkers. Uh, And if you like what you're hearing, please do us a favor. uh, Write a review on iTunes. Keeps the content fresh. And we actually use that to uh, focus on what types of guests to bring on the show. So until next time, we at Value Prime Solutions wish you all nothing but the best